This episode of The Real Podcast is sponsored by Blackjack Contracting. Blackjack Contracting is a team of skilled trades that helps investors across the greater Golden Horseshoe with medium to large size renovation projects. Not only are they fast and friendly, but their specialty is in creating legal basement suites that helps you, the investors, create higher rental premiums. They are an integral part of my dream team, and I highly encourage you to check them out. Hello and welcome. You're in the Real Estate Investors Lounge. So grab a seat and get comfortable as we dive into the strategies, the mindsets, and the motivations of some of the brightest entrepreneurs in the real estate investment world. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the Real Estate Investors Lounge podcast. Here's your host, Brian Fitzgerald. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Real Estate Investors Lounge. My name is Brian Fitzgerald. And on this episode, we're going to have a great conversation with Michael Walk from walkproperties.ca. Before starting his journey, Michael was living the normal CPA lifestyle. Now, as an investor, he is throwing down some investment roots in the Hamilton, St. Catharines, and Welland areas and building the Walk Properties Empire. Does that sound accurate, Mike? Yes, sir. Thank yeah. you. I, that's, that's very well said. <laughs> Especially the empire part, right? Yeah, I love it. Can't complain <laughs> about that. That's good. Everybody wants an empire. So how are you doing, Mike? Otherwise, pretty good? Not bad, yeah. Yeah, can't, can't complain these days. I'm just uh, living living the full-time working lifestyle with this side gig of uh, real estate investing and trying to grow the portfolio. Good for you, man. Smart fella, obviously. You're CPA and you're investing in real estate. Like You might be a genius. <laughs> I don't know about that. I'm always <laughs> learning. Hey, good. That's good. You should always be learning. Once you stop learning, then you got a problem. So, Michael, let's go back to the start. Before real estate investing, what did your life look like then? Yeah, sure, Brian. So both me and my wife, we've had full-time T4 jobs for about 12 years now. We're still working in the 9 to 5. Before real estate, I dabbled in RSPs and mutual funds a little bit. I One of the mutual funds I invested maybe $500 and I'd be checking it every day to see how the value was fluctuating. And it, it would go down $10, $15 up and down. And then after a couple of months, it was down maybe to 400 or 450 I ended up selling it because I couldn't take the up and down. I realized that even though I had owned this asset, I had no, no control over it. I was really at the mercy of the market. Nobody in my family or, or circle of friends owned rental properties before we bought our first one. And so you could kind of say that before real estate, we were probably headed towards a life of working corporate jobs, saving what we could and hoping that we had enough left for retirement, right? Mm-hmm. I think that's the dream that everybody is brought up to strive towards. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The, the get a good job and pay off your mortgage. I think those were like exactly the only two it. rules when I was younger and even my dad still thinks I'm crazy, I think, for having multiple rental properties. But at the same time, I think he sees the bigger picture now. Yeah. Yeah, you're always going to have folks that uh, continue to doubt you, right? But oh, yeah. um, as you as you show them over the long run, what kind of changes and things it's allowing you to do in your life, that's when they, they kind of jump on board. Right on. Michael, what was the point where investing in real estate became an idea and then kind of went into action and, and came to fruition for you? So I'd say I never really aspired to own rental properties or to be a landlord or an investor. And about 10 years ago, on a 
beautiful Saturday morning on the Hamilton Mountain. (laughs) (laughs) My in-laws were standing in line at a new build sales center, and my wife and I were dropping off coffee for them. And for some reason, we ended up sneaking in line behind them. I think we were fifth or sixth into the sales center that morning. And a few hours later, we ended up buying our first rental property. So it, it wasn't actually the first rental that my wife had owned a few years earlier. When she was 18, she had actually bought a a little townhouse which she was renting out by the room. And then soon after, she bought another townhouse in Hamilton. So she had a little bit of experience owning real estate. By the time we met, she had sold off one of them. And the other one, we actually moved into and lived in for a little while before we sold that one off. So I'd say my initial exposure to rental properties was because of my wife. She was kind of responsible for setting off this, this investing spark about 10 years ago in me. Okay. So she got out of the rental game and then did she have like some persuasion over you to get back into it or is it just kind of, you know, kind of fall on your lap again? How come she got out of it? So there was a condo board at one of the townhouses that she sold first and they were giving her a hard time because they didn't like tenant turnover. And then for the second property that she was still holding on to, that was kind of our first, very first starter home. It was in a rough part of the city where we, even though we set up roots initially for the first year or two, we didn't want to stay there. And it wasn't a property that we wanted to keep because of the types of tenants that it, it was attracting. So we sold that one together. So it wasn't really getting out of the rental game. It was more getting out of those two properties but definitely keeping an eye and planning on what do we want to buy first together to keep on renting. Okay. I could have almost stopped you right there when you said condo and I'm like, Oh, okay. (laughs) Now you can see where this is going. So would would you say now that for the most part, unless the deal was just like incredible that you'd probably stay away from those condo style investment properties? Yeah. Yeah. I think so. Yeah. There's just the more fixed costs, whether it's the road fee or the condo fee or any type of maintenance fee that is tacked on to your monthly expense, the harder it is to kind of have a positive cash flow in property, right? Right, for sure. And we we haven't actually talked about condos uh, a whole lot on this podcast before, but as you know, Mike, like there's condo fees and typically, and I'm saying this with air quotations, those condo fees don't go down. They just continue to increase over time. And um, I just sold the condo for a friend of mine. His condo fees in Burlington were $770 a month. It was more than his actual mortgage payments, which just blew my mind. Like, beautiful place. Don't get me wrong. But how do you recoup that cost? You know, now you have a $550,000 condo with the mortgage of whatever, but then you have $770 a month in condo fees. It's hard to make that work into the budget, right? Yeah, I've definitely heard the same thing. My younger sister had been looking in, in Mississauga a few months ago, and a lot of the older condo buildings are regularly anywhere between six and 800 a month just on that fee alone, right? Yeah. I know it includes um, some of the utilities, which is nice, but it is a large cost to swallow when you're running your numbers, right? Yeah. And then kind of what you said, the condo owners were not liking the turnover of tenants in your unit. So And then now condo declarations are getting a little tighter because people are trying to buy these condos at reasonable prices to rent them out. And then having to deal with the condo board, the declaration that are getting tighter and tighter. I mean, 
I'm not an advocate of condos, but I know they do make sense in some places, but just not in my wheelhouse. Apparently not yours either. Same here. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) So Mike, let's go back a little bit and let's talk about that first deal. I mean, obviously you said your wife was involved, but then got out of it. But the first deal where you guys were on the same page, what did that deal look like? And, and, And give me some details if you could, please. Yeah, sure. So it was a single family home on the central Hamilton Mountain. You build from the builder, a very typical cookie cutter unit, a three bedroom, two bath, above 1400 square feet. It's just a very cozy house. So we closed on it in 2009 for 282000 And I wish prices today were still in that oh, range. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, so we, we lived in it for about a year between tenants over the years as our principal residence was being built. When we first took possession, it was renting for, I think it was maybe 1400 a month, cash flowing a whopping 50 or $75. <laughs> but I can say that that single property changed our entire financial future. Over the years, we've refinanced it multiple times, pulled out money, used it for things like vacation, some of the down payment on the, on the house that we live in now, um, down payments for rental properties. So whenever I talk to a new investor, I, I tell them like one investor in property can, can have such a, such a huge impact on your financial future. Just get into one. Let, let that one asset build some equity and some cash flow for you into the future, right? So right. that's some of the story about that first property. Very cool. So you said 282 in 2009, is that correct? Yeah. Okay. So obviously for a refinance, you probably had to go through an appraisal on that property, right? Yep. So when was the last appraisal? Do you mind sharing what it was worth in whatever year? When was the last appraisal? So the last appraisal was about a year ago and it came in at 560. That was one of the first appraisals where I handed a package of comparables that my agent helped together. And I actually put an, an estimated value on what I was hoping the appraisal to come back at. Right. I think I was estimating 570, 580. I ended up getting 560, which we were very happy with. So it allowed us to pull out as much money as we could to use for other properties. That's crazy. That's, that's not far off 300 grand in appreciation in what, less than 10 years. That's pretty, yeah. that's healthy. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know many investments that can uh, produce such a healthy return that way. That's crazy. And then obviously, it's just been building block for you guys in Walk Properties, right? It has. It really has. It's been the foundation of like, it was kind of like our training ground where we made a few mistakes with tenants and from the financial perspective of having that property. And, and we've been raising rent over time. So we've never really been in a negative cash flow position. Yeah, it's it's definitely been a foundational property for us. Great. That's fantastic. Do you think if, um, obviously, like you said, rents have gone up on that property, but also so is the mortgage as you've refinanced it a few times. Do you think there's ever going to come a point where that property has done what it's needed to do for you and you'll let it go? Or do you think you'll still try and hang on to it for the long term? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. In the last six to eight months, we've we've had those chats w- with my wife. And I think it is pretty close to that. Like owning owning a single family home that's worth that much isn't the type of property that I know many investors are, are getting into. So if you do own one, chances are there might be a better use for that money, right? If we right. sell it and pull out, let's say 100000 that's money that I could use for one or one and a half down payments on the types of properties that we're investing in these days, right? Right. 
So, Mike, I'm going to put you on the spot here, if you don't mind, putting on your CPA hat for a moment. Now, you've pulled out a fair amount of equity out of this property. You purchased it for 282 almost 10 years ago. It's worth 560 now, approximately. If you were to sell it, what happens when it comes to tax time that the CRA is going to want to see? Sure. So um, let me let me pull out the income tax act here, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> wait, wait. There's an income tax app. <laughs> <laughs> it's this big book that I throw at clients when they come in and they ask bad questions. <laughs> oh, okay. Thank God we're doing this over audio. You can't throw anything. Uh, at yeah. So what would happen is um, in the year that I sell my property, if we sell it next year in 2020, let's see what which could happen when I'm filing my taxes in in March. May of 2021, I would have to claim that capital gain on the sale. So just to do some quick numbers, and let's say over the years, I've put in, let's say, 38000 of capital renovation, just to keep numbers easy. So my, what I would call adjusted cost base, ACB of that property, would be the 282 purchase price plus the 38 capital additions. So I would be at 300 20,000 as an adjusted cost base. If I sell that property for 560, that means that I have a capital gain of 560 minus 320, so 240,000. That's my capital gain. Capital gains in in Ontario are taxed at 50%. So on my personal tax return because this is in a personal names, so the total taxable capital gain would be half of that. So 120,000 taxable capital gain, um, 60,000 each would go to each of our tax returns because we're, we've been claiming like splitting all the rental income and expenses half and half every year. So then I would pay tax on 60,000 times my marginal tax rate. Let's say it's 25, 30%. So I'm paying anywhere between, uh, what is it, 15,000 and... 25 and 18,000 of tax on that and my wife let's say same thing. So our kind of tax tax burden if you will would be about 15 to 18,000 each. So okay. it'd be 30 35 let's even say 40,000 okay. that I'm giving back to the CRA at time of sale of this property after owning it for 10 years solely because of the equity increase that I've had. Right. So out of approximately, let's say, $275,000 worth of appreciation, you're going to have to give CRA back around forty, give or take. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Yep. Still, which, which is, I can't complain about no, that. No, you can't complain. You want to complain, and you will complain, <laughs> and we'll curse off the air, but I understand. So all in all, still, not a bad deal. Not a bad deal at all. So Definitely. thanks. I appreciate you, Mike, putting that, uh, that hat on for me. It's tough questions, no I know. No problem. So with your story of real estate investing, what was something unique that happened to you along the way in, in, the, in the building of the empire? Yeah, so I can speak to an interesting investment strategy that we've used recently. At least I consider it interesting. Hit me. <laughs> um, awesome. So this past summer, in about early June, we used what I call like a midterm rental strategy where it's, it's a hybrid between finding long-term tenants and short-term, like Airbnb. We, we didn't want to do that. So we actually, when we advertised on Kijiji and Facebook and some of the other platforms, we were actually gearing that advertising towards tenants that were only looking for a rental 
for between six to 12 months. So we actually provide examples. Are you on a work term? Are you are you working through an insurance claim where maybe you had a house fire or a flood? Is there a family event, maybe like a separation that you're working through and, and you just need to kind of find a place temporarily? So what we ended up finding is a family that needed the house and rented it for nine to 12 months. We still signed a one-year lease just for mortgage purposes, but this family had experienced a house fire where almost their entire house is being rebuilt. And so the market rent for this property in June, I'd say, was anywhere between 22, 2300 a month. We ended up renting it for 3200 plus all the utilities to them. Wow. The insurance paid us three months up front, so it was almost a $10,000 check. They send us checks 10 days before the end of every month. And it's also not furnished. And, and we didn't provide any of the appliances because this family had all of their own. So it worked out great. It was the first time that we tried this strategy. We had a, I think it was a six-day gap between when our previous tenants moved out who were only paying half of this amount right. until the time that this family needed it. We still ran them through our regular due diligence the the employment check, the reference check, credit check. We actually spoke to the insurance company to confirm that there was an active claim. We um, Googled their, their home address, saw some newspaper articles that, yeah, the house doesn't have an upper floor. <laughs> it caught fire. <laughs> like, I felt like we, we were, we were like, like bringing them through the ringer in terms of checking to make sure that this whole story was true, right? Yeah. And they also had some interesting observations for us. So this was in Hamilton, and they're, they're a family with two young kids, a dog, and a cat. So one of the first things they told us is that most landlords don't didn't want to listen to them because they had animals, right? Many landlords are afraid of the damage, so they were automatically out of those, those properties that they were looking at. They also wanted an entire house, which this was. Well, as you know, Brian, many investors have flocked to Hamilton, and they've split all of these wartime bungalows into two units or even three units in some areas of the city. So they didn't want to live with somebody upstairs or downstairs beside them. And then some landlords didn't want to sign a lease that, that was less than a year. They might leave in seven, eight, nine months, right? Landlords wanted to have assurance that they'd have somebody for at least a year. So yeah, it, it's a strategy that has worked out well financially for us. They're still there in the unit for a couple of more months. And they've been really good tenants. I haven't heard from them once. That's awesome. I, I was going to ask, like, what was the appeal with this? Because your tenant turnover is going to be higher, which is, you know, a little bit more work involved. But when you're getting rent premiums like that, that's that kind of answers my own question. Yeah. So is the insurance company paying you directly or is it still coming through the tenants? My lease is signed with the tenants. Mm-hmm. Insurance company's name is on the checks that are mailed directly to me every month. So oh, I, wow. I had that all in writing, in emails, and multiple, like I had two phone calls with the with the junior person and manager. I just, I'm very particular when it comes to screening, especially if it's a non-typical, long-term, nice family that I feel like in the gut pretty good about sure. it. Yep. There was some nuances. So yeah, it is the insurance company. That's awesome. That's a really, that's a cool story. I like that. And I mean, those rent premiums are insane. So yeah, good for you. Yeah. Is Thank that you. something you think you would uh, maybe look towards in the future? To do again? Yeah, I think so, definitely. When they leave, it might be February, it might be March. I might take the approach, which I've done before, where I advertise the same property, but using two different strategies, right? One is short-term, 
or shorter term, like a midterm approach with a higher rent. And the other one is the actual long-term tenants. And I see what kind of leads what the numbers that are coming in at. If there's not much uptake on the midterm, but there's a lot of good quality leads coming in for the long-term, we'll just put in a long-term tenant. But I like having those options. And this is a property that shows very well, doesn't need a lot of work or cleanup in between tenants, assuming that they haven't caused any damage. So it really allows for either strategy to work. Awesome. I like that. That's a happy, feel-good story. It gives me the warm and fuzzies. I like it. <laughs> awesome. Mike, so you have children, right? Did you say two children? Yeah. And how old are they? Nine and ten. Nine and ten. Okay. So with your investing adventure and how you're kind of gaining momentum, how do you balance that? How Like family, investing, and then obviously your, your normal nine to five. How, how are you balancing these things? Yeah, so um, it's definitely a juggling act. I, I make the kids do as much work as possible. <laughs> <laughs> we try to bring them to the properties here and there. Like they've helped us paint garages before because the garage was just a disaster. My son loves cutting the grass. They like pick out rooms that they would want if we had to move into that rental property. <laughs> <laughs> so we've always really tried to um, teach them and share a lot about our incomes and our tenants and things like cash flow, just to ensure that they become financially literate, right? I'm not sure if they're going to get that type of learning at school. So it, it was actually funny. One day my son came home and because we'd been talking about the Rich Dad Poor Dad book, I think on the previous weekend, he actually went and told his teacher that her primary residence was her largest liability. So... <laughs> I had to sit him down and say, like, son, I think you need to slow down a little bit on the sharing oh of some of the goodness. things that daddy teaches you because not everybody may understand that, right? Right, right. That is so funny. <laughs> yeah, so I think growing up, finances and income and just discussions about buying assets are topics that weren't really covered in my household. I don't think my wife's parents had those conversations with her. So we just want to make sure that our kids are exposed to that info. So like they know that mommy makes a little bit more money than daddy, but daddy might get to retire early to look after all the rental properties, right? Right. Yeah. So in terms of finding balance, I'm a very detail-oriented person. So I really try to maximize family time and not let the portfolio and the showings and rentals and any property maintenance get in the way of what truly matters at home. I really coordinate as much of that as I can around the family time and the school event. After all, as you know, Brian, like we're, we're doing all of this to have freedom, to have a better life, to make sure that our kids are working at a corporate job for 30, 35 years when they grow up. So yeah, it definitely makes this whole investing gig a lot funner when everybody's involved instead of me, let's say, just going out to these properties and doing rentals weekends and evenings for weeks on end. Right. No, it makes sense. Mike, you mentioned that, you know, you try and, and, and prioritize family time. Are you fairly hands off with your properties? Like if there's maintenance to be done, like let's just say like a leaky sink or, uh, you know, something minimal, are you looking after that or do you have people, uh, part of your team looking after that? I feel like I've transitioned a little bit from doing everything on my own. I, I am a pretty handy guy to now delegating things that make sense to be delegated. If it's a plumbing job for 80 or $100 or a handyman that can go there and it saves me half an hour, an hour drive each way, I'll definitely delegate it. Whereas as we were starting out, it, I always felt like every dollar mattered. 
now I've come to that realization, especially when I see other successful investors around me, that they actually do very little work on their own because their time is just so much more valuable every hour, whether it be real estate business growing or family time, because you need to find and also taking care of yourself, right? Oh, yeah. Working out, whatever it is, right? So I feel like I'm slowly transitioning to passing more of that off to members of my power team. Yeah, no, I understand that wholeheartedly. Mike, what does your portfolio look like now? What's in the portfolio of, of Walk Properties right now? So we still have that first single family home, like the golden egg. Our second property was a single family home that we purchased in St. Catharines about a year and a half ago. We have good tenants in there, but when they move out and when the city kind of cleans up their act and becomes more responsive to investors putting in legal second suites, definitely a candidate where we would want to do that. Our third property is a legal second suite conversion that we're working through right now in Welland, where we have a general contractor doing most of the rental for us. And then our fourth property is one that we closed on in June 2020. It'll be a legal duplex in in St. Catharines. That's one that we found through the Rockstar Network. It's like an infill project being built by a small builder in the area. So I'd say we live in Hamilton. The Welland property is furthest from us. It's about an hour away. But I think in all these cities that we're in, most of the power team and the subcontractors and the trades that I know, they all kind of service all of these areas. So I feel like for most things that I need, plumbing, electrical, handyman, it's usually one or two guys that can help me wherever I have an issue. Perfect. Perfect. That's a, that's a nice looking portfolio. And are you finding that you know, Welland is a little bit more appealing right now. Cause like you said, St. Catharines needs to clean some things up. I always joke that part of their bylaw is a, is a typo saying that the maximum a unit can be is 650. I joke that I'm like, maybe they meant to say minimum. Maybe somebody had fat fingers <laughs> and typed in maximum by accident. <laughs> Doesn't seem to have yeah. done anything yet. Oh man, I wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> I don't know much about Welland. I know it's a city that investors have kind of started moving towards recently as well. From our permitting and legal second suite process and inspection point of view, they've been really good. They've been very flexible. I know one of the inspections, I think there was a few minor things, but they are very welcoming because they appreciate this money coming in from the bigger surrounding cities, other parts of the GTA, and fixing up these properties and adding additional units of rental stock, right? So we've been pretty happy so far. We haven't yet figured out in terms of like what the tenant profile is, how much activity we gain there when we put a unit up for rent year after year versus Hamilton or St. Catharines, or we kind of have a better idea. But it seems like it's a really nice town that has a lot of good things going for it. Agreed. Mike, funding deals. How are you doing that now? So you're sitting at quite a few properties. How is the funding going for the deals now? Uh, the the never-ending uh, financing question, right? <laughs> <laughs> so far, it's been a combination of just savings from our T4 income over the years and refinancing properties. It's been those two things. So anytime one of our properties has gotten to a value, like a value where I think we could appraise that, when I take 80% of that and I subtract whatever my mortgage balance is, if I feel like it has 
40, 50, 60,000 of equity, we would try to refinance and use that money for another property, right? So in the last year or so, I'd say we're really focused more than ever on mapping out what our equity and our mortgage paydown situations will look like going forward. So in six months and a year, obviously, we need to line things up to qualify for a mortgage in June 2020 for this new built property. And a lot of that has happened with discussions and conversations and a plethora of emails that I bother my awesome mortgage broker with all the time. Yeah, <laughs> I think about things from a tax return and an accounting perspective. They can tell me, kind of fill in the blanks from the lender's perspective. I've always kind of done my own ratio calculations just to ballpark where I am. But then obviously, it's not the same. Every lender is different. We've been lucky that we've used all A lenders so far. But I think as we kind of grow, moving to those B lenders, even private private lenders are, are kind of the next step. So just to kind of sum it up, because I get the financing question a lot when I'm speaking with especially newer investors, there is no magic. Like we bought our first property and we waited. We, we didn't buy our second one until I think it was like seven or eight years later, just because we were saving for that 20% down payment. Since then, that snowball of, of equity and of that time in the market has really allowed us to buy that third property, like do that big rental. We're going to do a refi on that in a couple of months, pull that money out, reuse it. And that's allowed us to get into the third and the fourth. Cool. Now you are sticking with A lenders right now. And obviously the future, you never know what it's going to hold. But what about joint ventures? Is that something you think you'll entertain in the future? Yeah, it's definitely um, an area that I've spent a couple of, of months now kind of almost like putting building blocks in place to set myself up for continuing to grow through that avenue. So for example, like many family and friends know that we are looking for four partners. I think I can improve on the way that I market myself and how I get the word out there because I've never wanted to be like a sleazy salesman type that somebody that's over aggressive and like saying, I have all these deals coming by with me. Like I, I'm just kind of slow and steady, right? Waiting until our couple of properties stabilize a little bit to then say like, here's what we've built so far. Here's the strategies we've used. Here's my track record. Do you want to go and buy a property together, right? So I, I've put together like a detailed in investor binder that goes over how we want to structure a JV. I, I know there's a lot of ways to do it. Some of the strategies that we've used I even detailed members of our power team, some of the systems that I have in place. So yeah, like it's it's all part of setting up that brand to kind of create awareness that we are real estate investors. We know our stuff. We're experts in the markets that we invest in. We do most of the work ourselves still. So we are still boots on the ground. Like we haven't delegated everything where we're way up here and, and we can't answer any detailed questions, potential JV partner. So yeah. Currently, I have a couple of individuals that I'm working on on pre-qualifying them with our mortgage broker. And so the goal is to hopefully buy a property or two with partners in the next couple of months. Very cool. It sounds like you've got the, the foundation, the building blocks in place. And I mean, obviously, your track record is going to be the best part of your resume. So I don't think you have any problems selling yourself there. Yeah, thank you, Brian. So, Mike, I want to talk about social media. How important is social media for your investing path? I noticed your face is a little bit more frequent on my newsfeed. What is it about social media? <laughs> I mean, you're you're a handsome fella. It's okay. It's okay. I don't know. Uh, but what well, what is it about social media that's uh, that's important for you? 
Yes, I guess I'm doing something well if uh, if their face is popping up and you're seeing it. Honestly, Brian, I used to hate social media. I never had much like information or many pictures about me on the internet or on Facebook or on Instagram. Earlier this year, I think it was March or April, I kind of decided just to take that plunge, just to start putting more information out there. And I think it was on yeah, it was on Facebook. The first video that I posted, it was just essentially telling everybody, all of my friends, that we are real estate investors, right? Like you got to start somewhere. Yep. And so I feel like I've been coming out of my shell since then. And at that time, I didn't have an Instagram account. It was so funny. You should have seen my wife spending days teaching me the basics of how to how to <laughs> how to do a post, what the heck a story was, how to add like a word or a letter on top of a story. Yeah. Uh, it was it was comical, but you have to start at some point, and I feel like I've really got in the hang of it, and now I enjoy using this powerful tool and combining it with some of the networking events that I've been attending. I feel like it's an amazing avenue to kind of let family, friends, other investors know what you're working on, what you're up to. And then as I've kind of started using social media, I've realized that this whole investor community that we're part in, it's really just kind of one big family. You see the same the same folks in the same online groups on Facebook or elsewhere at the same meetups. They're attending conferences and we're all kind of learning from each other, from the strategies that, that investors are implementing. So, I mean, on Instagram, I don't know, I might have a whopping like 300, 350 followers now. and so. Recently, it's almost evolved to the point where when I post things, I get responses and comments and questions from a lot of newer investors that to them, they're just coming across some of this for the first time and they're trying to get into their first property or they want to scale to that second property and they have tax questions or they have a question about like some of the numbers that I'm putting out there. So I'm really enjoying that where it started out as a sharing through social media then it kind of moved into learning from others. Now it's teaching others as well. So yeah, all of these interactions, every time I post a story or a, or a picture, anything, I'm really enjoying it. Cool. That's awesome. And I, I couldn't agree more. It's a very powerful tool, maybe because we're just in slightly older generations. I wish I had like a little brother that was about six or seven years younger than me to run this, the uh, the social media side of things, because I find the same way. There's a bit of a learning curve with it, right? It's like, your story sounds very similar where it's like, okay, somebody's telling me, oh, you can make a story. I'm like, I, what's, what's the story do? Well, it's just like a short clip of what you did. Okay, well, why why don't I just post a video? Well, it's different. And people like stories. I'm like, okay, I'll just take your word for it. It's, yeah, a, it's definitely a learning right. curve. And I then <laughs> just that's what that's, that's the stuff that makes me feel old. Yeah, I wish I, I, I had the money or the, or the ability to hire like a full-time or even a part-time social media person, right? Somebody that could just, Tell me, here's where we want to be on. We want to be on LinkedIn as well. We want to be doing YouTube videos, but we're just not at that point yet. You'll get there. You'll get there. Yeah. And yeah. it's and a case of prioritizing, right? Like you're still growing, but you will get to a point where you'll need that stuff. You'll need those people to do that stuff for you. That's right. Prioritizing is the is the key word. Like you can only do so many things at a specific point in this journey that you're at. And where I am, I'm doing the max that I can. I don't think I need to be everywhere all the time right now. In a year or a couple of years, it might be a different story. Right. Mike, so the future of Walk Properties, like what do you see for the future of the empire? 
So I think the goal is to grow the business and eventually have it allow me to leave my full-time job. It's a job I really enjoy, but I would really like to have some more time to kind of experiment with some different strategies within real estate. So whether it be things like wholesaling, like door-to-door knocking, um, short-term rentals, where I haven't really thought of jumping into these these other strategies without knowing how they work in a specific level of detail. I'd love to maybe even do some of my own rentals, right? I know you're not supposed to work in your business. You should be working on your business. But if I had all day, every day, and I could save money on some strategic pieces of work, I would love to do that. Maybe even some days kind of visiting other investors projects and doing social media that way where like hey i'm here at, at this guy's property look at the cool thing that he's doing and then that's more content that you can put, put out there right so yeah. yeah definitely more more videos whether it be youtube or, or some other methods i feel like there's so many topics related to real estate that i'm able to explain very clearly and succinctly and i would love to kind of share that with others especially new investors through other forms of, of social media, which I just don't have time for all that right now. But uh, yeah, so lots of cool ideas for the future, but one step at a time. I like it. Smart man. So Mike, we have the fire round here on the Real Estate Investors Lounge. Are you equipped to handle handle the heat? I'm going to fire I up. think so. You think so? Okay. Let, People have died it. trying, you know. <laughs> just just uh, no names though, no names. Okay. So fire round. The fire round. Michael, where do you see yourself in 12 months? I'd say the goal is to keep the momentum moving. So in 12 months, possibly owning two to three more properties. So a combination of on our own and JV partners. And I think I'd also like to have a clearer picture in a year of how much cash flow I need or, or how many more doors I might need to actually be able to retire with a monthly number that I feel pretty comfortable with. So just kind of in a year, once things have stabilized and the rentals are over, having more clarity on what else will it take for me to move into real estate investing full time. Very cool. Where do you see the market in the next 12 months? Ooh, the market. Uh, There is no one real estate market. There's a bunch of pockets, right? I listen to a lot of Tom and Nick from Rockstar when they talk about that like short-term being short-term paranoid, long-term optimistic, and I buy into that. But I think in the markets that we invest in, which is Hamilton and the Niagara region, there's just so many, so many of the fundamentals are strong, whether it be population growth or just the demand for nice quality housing units. I think if you're buying the right properties, you can't just be buying any house and expect to be better off in 12 months. I think if you're buying the right properties where the numbers make sense, that investors will do well in, in the next 12 months, no matter what happens at the market. Right. You ever see the picture where Tom puts up the picture of the green belt from 2005 or 2007, and then the comparable of 2000, like 10 years later in 2017 or something like that? Yeah, yeah, I have seen that. It's amazing. It's mind-blowing, eh? Yeah, and it's it's only going to continue. Recently, I heard him talking about the distance from Toronto to Oshawa, where things have really blown up in terms of property prices and rents, is exactly the same distance as from Toronto to St. Catharines, I think it was. And so if you're buying anywhere along that corridor and that like some of those infrastructure projects end up taking place, like the gold train, multiple trains going 
each way multiple times a day, I think for us investors that already own properties, we can only do well, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, read a book or listen to a podcast. Any in particular? Oh, I have a pile of like 10 books that I need to get through. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think um, everybody does. Oh, man. Um, I, I'd say podcasts. I think podcasts have had a, a huge impact on, on my growth and my learning. I've listened to literally hundreds of them in the last year during my commute to work and back. Like, like a couple that I'll just give a shout out to Tom and Nick's Rockstar one, definitely. I enjoy Sarah Larby's um, Where Should I Invest? Andrew Hines loves getting into like detailed numbers on deals, which I appreciate. And then there's this Real Estate Investors Lounge podcast, which is a classic as well. Oh, I heard about that one. It's all right. Yeah. It's all right. <laughs> <laughs> I actually, um, the contract I'm using in my welling conversion is somebody that was on your podcast a while back. So that just shows you the power of these podcasts. You listen to somebody speak for an hour and right away you feel more more comfortable with them, right? So I actually called them right after that podcast. And then a couple of months later, a year later, I ended up hiring him to do a huge project for me. Awesome. I'm going to get a lunch out of him then. For <laughs> sure. Do it. Do it. A drive through at Wendy's or something maybe. Or some pot lights or some extra <laughs> some in the next pot generation. Lights. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll mention that. Michael, who do you learn from? I'd say anybody in the real estate investing community. It's taken me a few months to kind of get to know who the key players are. I can't believe I didn't come across this whole circle five or 10 years ago. So it, it really depends on the topic. Like, like if I'm learning or trying to put together something around joint ventures, people like Mandy Branham, R Russell Westcott, like there's some new folks like the the, the Sarah Edders of the world, those are individuals that if you find them on a podcast or, or follow them on social media, there's so much free information that you can pick up from them, right? On the wholesaling front, I follow like Matt McKeever and all of his wholesalers out in London doing door-to-door -door knocking. So w when you see how they're doing it on a live or, or on a post, you're not even trying to learn, but you're picking up so much, right? Yeah. Before we got into our first duplex conversion, there was a lot of investors that I knew who were doing them or, or that had done multiple ones. So I reached out to them on social media. I met up with some of them. So I really learned from whoever I can find in the community. And, and everybody's so helpful and so giving in terms of information, depending on, on which area I'm trying to kind of build my build my database of info on. Yeah, I I agree with you there, too. The, the networking community is very inclusive. You know, it's not like, uh, you know, there's the kid standing on the wall waiting, waiting to dance with the girl on the inside. It's a very inclusive community where everybody's happily willing to help each other or give tips or let's go grab a coffee and chat. It's, uh, it's different than other, I don't know, circles or clicks or networking. It's just different. I like it. It's refreshing. Totally agree. Mike, what is a valuable piece of information that you take with you and that you would share with other investors? Yeah, I think it'd be around surrounding yourself with a power team. And, and this is something that I wish somebody had given me that advice when we were starting out. Because for the first eight or nine years, we try to do everything on our own, right? Maybe I'm a slow learner and I just didn't realize that all this was out there. But when we came across this whole power team idea, probably a year, year and a half ago, where you surround yourself with experts in their respective fields. So I think it starts probably with a real estate agent that 
knows the type of properties that you should be looking at, an amazing mortgage broker that really learns your entire financial picture and tells you how much you can afford, helps you build and sets you up so that you can scale in the future to buy a second and a third one and so on. A lawyer, a home inspector, accountant, all of these pieces, right? And if you don't have one of these in your Rolodex, if you will, on day one, ask the power team members that you already do have to to fill in some of the other thoughts, right? So I think me and my wife, we've literally surrounded ourselves with an army of individuals that are much smarter than us. And I think that makes us pretty smart. If we know where limitations are and we can do it all, we're not experts in all these areas. We want to go with the best of the best. And it's okay to to swap out some of those power team members as you grow, as your priorities and your goals change as well. So I'd say power team, baby. That's that's my advice to anybody starting out or even uh, even more seasoned investors. You heard it here first. Michael Walk is going to be getting a tattoo that says power team, baby. <laughs> I can't wait. I can't wait for the social media post on that one. Add power team, baby. That's yeah. the new handle. I'm, I'm working on it right now. Awesome. I like it. Awesome. Well, that's it, Mike. You survived the fire round, so uh, we can name you as a, as a survivor. So that's great. Thank you very much. And uh, No problem. Yeah, man. That was that was fantastic. I really appreciate you taking the time to, to sit with us and, and uh, you know, allow me to selfishly ask you a whole bunch of really fun questions. Anytime, Brian. Thank you very much for having me. Awesome. I appreciate it, Mike, and we'll be in touch soon, okay? From the Real Estate Investors Lounge, thanks for listening. Be sure to check out our website at www.reilounge.ca for more episodes and information. 